Okay, well, let's go ahead. We'll start class with prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Pray that as uh, we look at Malachi and continue tonight, that you'll grant us wisdom and insight into what Malachi is discussing. May we be able to see these things and apply it to our life and hopefully be good examples of what godly marriages should be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be looking at, um, start on page 36. Last week, we got to paragraph A. But let me just review where we are. We're, we're looking at Malachi chapter 2. And this is part of what we call that third disputation. Remember the disputation? You're trying to show, convince somebody that the position's wrong. So this is the third one. And the issue with this whole, with all seven verses, is that Judah was unfaithful by violating God's expectations in marriage. We started out at the beginning of this unit. We saw that they had married idolaters, that is, those who did not serve the true and living God. And that was a problem. We uh, started to look. I think we got to page 37.2. The Lord charges Judah with violating his covenant by practicing a virgin divorce. I believe we looked at paragraph A. And that's where we went through this thing about this uh, manipulative crimes, extremes, and stuff like this. And then we were ready to look at the specifications. And that's point B. Notice there's a specification about the Lord's role as the enforcer of the marriage covenant. Let me get this turned around here. So I'll have a meeting of my notes in my Bible. I need my Bible, though. So we're, uh, notice what verse 14 says. You ask. In fact, let's go back to get the context. Verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why Why is that the case? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Now, with this specification, point one, the people's question, we saw that. Number two, the Lord rejects Israel's unrepentant sorrow because he is an enforcer of the covenant. Verse 14 presents a reason why God rejects disingenuous sorrow. Because some of the members of the covenant community had violated their vow to uphold their terms of the divinely given marriage covenant, The Lord will not accept pious worship. Three aspects in verse 14 we're going to look at. 
and we'll do a survey of the significance of the marriage covenant. Um, that will give us some ideas as to why the Lord rejects the worship of these covenant violators. Notice, first of all, A, small letter A, this verse is set in a covenant context. Now, that's the key. Remember, Israel is part of a covenant community. That is, they were God's nation that he set apart. As members of that covenant community, they have obligations to God and to one another. So, you know, I tried to explain last week, we really don't have an exact comparison with the church. See, the church is made up of all regenerate people. I mean, supposedly. Um, so people join a church by profession of faith and baptism. Uh, your church may be Bible, but you're still Baptistic. I do know that. I've got that right from the man's mouth. <laughs> In fact, I trained him, come to think of it. <laughs> so... Anyway, if he's changed, let me know because Dr. Combs and I are having lunch with him tomorrow. I can go after him if you want. Unfortunately, he usually rises to the occasion. <laughs> um, so this is the covenant community. Covenant is also used at the end of verse 14 when he refers to a person's spouse as the wife of your marriage covenant. So it is a covenant context. Second, the violation in this context is being unfaithful. As noted in verse 10, unfaithful is used in reference to a prior covenant agreement. Now notice third at the top of page 37, the expression acting as witness is consistently used as a covenant term in the Old Testament. So my point is, this is a clear covenant context. Now, if you'll notice in about the middle of my first paragraph, we saw here in verse 14, uh, the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. So notice the witness is the Lord. Now, what's interesting with this term, we often think of a witness like in our court settings. This is different with Israel. The witness is a guarantor that the verdict, like in a covenant lawsuit, will be carried out. He's responsible to make sure it's carried out. See, in our country, it's completely different. You witness and you go home. In that day, that wasn't the case. That witness had the obligation to make sure the terms that had been reached were satisfied. So he'd be going after them. It's better to call him the enforcer. So, but what's interesting here, notice it's God who's the witness. He's the enforcer, which should be a scary thing. Remember what it says in the New Testament? And it's also said in the Old Testament. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I don't think in our culture we hear much about that. But friends, we need to keep in mind, it is always a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, 
He is the one who damns people. That should put the fear of God in our heart. That should cause us all to have repentant attitudes. You know, I always tell my seminary students, you know, I continue the Christian life just like I began it. I repented and I believed. Today, I still repent and I still believe. I continue it the same way. Now notice, in marriage, as the context relates to here, there's always occasions for problems. You know, in August, we'll be married 42 years. There's been many occasions for problems. I mean, that's just the nature of life. Two people can't live together without difficulties. You know, I remember my, my wife's older sister. She's from a family of uh, seven. She's got six siblings. Uh, there's six girls in the family and one boy. Uh, I'll tell you what, I hate to have been in his shoes. But he's kind of a big guy, so he was more the defender of the family. But I remember her oldest sister, they visited us when we were first married. We lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And she and her husband, they were going on and on how they had the perfect marriage. They never had a disagreement. Uh, And they just made a big deal out of it. And so when my wife and I went to bed that night, I said, you know, Somebody's given and the other one's taking. And let me predict, they will be divorced. You know, I hate to say I was a prophet that night. Two people who just, one always gives the orders and the other one's just always submissive and lovey-dovey. That's not going to work. People aren't like that. We have disagreements. Um, You know, my wife and I, we still have disagreements. Fortunately, it's not as major as when we were younger. Once you throw kids and financial problems into the mix, it is much more dicey. And, you know, we went through those years. Somehow we survived. But, you know, there was one key. I mean, there's a lot of keys. But the one thing we resolved years ago, we don't let the sun go down on our wrath. If we've had a disagreement with each other, we make up before we go to bed. Now, I can't say that that's always been the case. But it has been a rule of thumb. But I would be lying if I said there wasn't a case when I didn't go to bed angry. (laughs) But, I mean, we've really worked to avoid it. Well, see, that's how you maintain a healthy relationship. Because we do have vast differences of opinion. Uh, you know, I can't help it that she's wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if she was here, she would say, she can't help it that I'm wrong. Well, two individuals living together, that's the way we think. But that's when wisdom has got to prevail. I'm a depraved sinner saved by grace. I cannot always be right. It's impossible. It's impossible for my wife to always be right. Because a Christian family is made up Two sinners saved by grace who are growing in grace. And that's just the nature of the beast. So, to me, uh, it's not that we haven't had many disagreements. We've had. 
but we do try to work it out before we go to bed at night. And I think that is a good thing to try to do. Uh, now, it's good to go to bed repentant, though. You can work it out. But generally, um, you know, I, I'll be the first sometimes to say, you know, dear, I sinned against you. And I'll say, I've asked Christ to forgive me. Will you forgive me? And she'll do the same thing. But you know, I notice we practiced that so long. My son, Bob, he's, he's the one I've, I've described. He's, he's on a gang squad in Scottsdale, Arizona. His wife tell, told us the last time we were there, when they have a disagreement, Bob is usually the first one to reconcile. You know where he got that from? Watching his parents. Say they do catch some things. Although when he was a teenager, I just thought he was an idiot. He was taking in more than what I realized. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I think, you know, we ought to strive to do that, just make it a rule of thumb. The best way to guard against a poor relationship is to try to cultivate some right things. But it will never be that we always agree. If you think that, it's just not going to make it. It's an impossibility. Well, these poor Israelites, and it's really the men who are really at fault here. Uh, They're the ones who are going to be divorcing their wives. Wives generally did not divorce their husbands. It was the men. Now, what we're going to see as the passage develops, we'll see what is the marriage covenant and then what constitutes biblical grounds for divorce. So let's, let's move on to point two then. The one being divorced is the wife from an Israelite man's youth. Did you notice the text that said the wife of your youth? The wife of one's youth refers to marriages in Old Testament times that were arranged by one's parents before youth was full grown. That was the custom. That was the culture. Sometimes before children were born, almost always before they reached puberty, very rarely when they were grown, their parents would make a contract with the parents of an appropriate mate in anticipation of the time that the two would be married. Prior to the marriage, they were betrothed, a legal status. Let me pause here. We don't have a betrothal period. It's similar to our uh, engagement period, but there is a difference. This one had legal consequences if you violated it. Engagements here today, it's as easy to get out of as it is as easy to get into it. So we don't have the binding sort of nature, but for them it was binding. So they would have this legal status upon marriage, contracted probably in writing, solemnized by vows, witnessed by ceremony and celebration, and enforced as a covenant by God himself. They certainly were legally obligated to one another. 
since nearly all marriages were arranged during the childhood of both parties, the term wife of your childhood made sense. Men could marry other wives later, but these could never be called your childhood wife. They could be called pelagesh, that is a concubine. A concubine is a non-inheriting wife. Um, but she could never be the wife of your youth. By the way, in our country, that's illegal. Although, let me predict, I think we will have polygamy in the future. It's just a matter of time. I remember when Bill Clinton was president. My wife and I, all in, all in 2020 or something, they interviewed a polygamist. And, uh, you know, they go and interviewed his five wives. I think he was in his, oh, early 50s, maybe mid-50s. He was just a little bit younger than me. And uh, he's describing the glories of polygamy. His wives were between 29 and 21. And I said to my wife, boy, he's lucky. <laughs> I bit. I did. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. <laughs> now, I was making a joke. I wanted to make sure she was watching. <laughs> but, you know, they then took us to the playground with all 29 children. And I said, the guy's a fool. I could never handle that. <laughs> well, you know what? Within a couple of years, he was arrested because they did a follow-up on it. And rightfully so. That was the law of the land. But as we're changing our laws, and I mean, I assume homosexual unions, um, these now can have married relationships. I mean, it's happening all around us. It's just a matter of time. That's a sad indictment. But we're not there yet. And I think for Christians, that should be unacceptable because Paul's very clear in the New Testament. It's one man, one woman. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, polygamy was allowed. And uh, God even told David he gave him, Saul's wives. So there's a difference between polygamy and just people living together. There's some type of marriage contract. There's not the benefits for the concubine like with a free woman, but nevertheless, there is some type of marital contract. So I think it's different than just people who just move in together. Or how many... So often you find out they're also involved with other women at the same time. <laughs> it's a sad situation. My wife has worked in a dental office for years. And many of the young girls that work there have lived together with their boyfriends. And sure enough, somebody usually gets burnt. And it's usually the poor gal that was making the living and the other guy's just laying around at home. Well, they have nothing to do. So... You know, they watch TV all day. They probably have HBO and whatever else is out there and feed their mind with all kind of filth. And they hook up with other women, other women. It's just a sad thing. 
But it, it's very common in our culture to see that sort of thing. But in God's sight, that's still wrong. And according to Paul, monogamy in the New Testament era, and that takes into account us, is just one man, one woman. Yes, Ken, you're thinking of marrying another? Mm-hmm. It says marrying a second or subsequent wife uh, was never outlawed in Scripture. Uh, let's see, where is it? It's at the bottom of uh, paragraph B. Marrying a second or subsequent wife was never an excuse. It was never outlawed. Oh, really? You got an error in your notes. Now, we're talking about point B. Okay, I'm on page 37. Okay, go down towards the end of the paragraph. Do you see Judges 19.1? Yeah. Or other wife as in Deuteronomy. And the, First Samuel 1.2. Okay, and then I have marrying a subsequent, marrying a second or subsequent wife. Oh, polygamy was never outlawed. You're talking about what's in parentheses? Yes. Okay, okay. Now, what was the question again? Well, right here it's saying that polygamy was never outlawed in Scripture. It should be the Old Testament. I'm quoting Gordon Eugenberger, and in the context, he's referring to the Old Testament. No, no, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It may work for you, Ken. <laughs> so yes. Had... I know it's hard to fathom. Uh, a thousand. Right. And God alone. <laughs> I can't even imagine how many people straight. But in the Old Testament, why did God allow that? Was it for the procreation? Well, I I think in some cases that does help with procreation. Um. Well, David had, he was a polygamist. And God does say in 1 Samuel 12, he gave him Saul's wives. But God uh, did not do that with Solomon because he was marrying idolaters. Well, I think in principle, he could still have had a polygamist marriages. Now, to me, the 1,000 wives is a bit excessive. So... I think he was just extreme. I mean, he really backslid away from the Lord, I think, until his final years of his life. But he was a well-known king, and harems were common with kings. However, he outdid them all. I mean, you don't hear them, usually with a thousand. You know, how, how many of his wives did he actually know? He couldn't have. I mean, this is too much. I mean, but they're all political in nature. And so, by the way, in harems, one of the problems with harems is the adultery that goes on. It is a major problem in harems. So you can imagine what went on in Solomon's harem. I, Although God still allowed it, I think even God would have said this is extreme. But they did have a marriage contract. Yeah.
Yes. Well, he married just in disobedience. But the laws of the land still allowed for polygamy. And he was following the laws of the land. But for marrying idolaters, that's what led him astray. So that was wrong, and, and God definitely was not pleased with that. So on the account, with many of these wives being idolatrous, uh, we do know clearly God was not pleased with that. So, you know, go figure. I guess when you get that much power and that much influence so that all the nations around them wanted to be aligned with them and are giving you their daughters, shows you their view of their daughters. I mean, seriously. They were kind of weapons with safety and stuff like that. Nothing more, nothing less. And the truth of the matter is, women, you know, I hate to break it to you, but women were treated very shabbily. Uh, You know, when I've gone to India, I can still see this with the women there. They always walk behind their wives, behind their husbands. Now, I notice with Daniel Kumar, his wife, he walks with his wife. So I do see a distinction with Christians. But the average Hindu, the wives are going to be walking behind their husbands. And so that's, they're about like cattle, which is sad, because I do think that violates scripture. See, women are fellow image bearers. And they should never be treated like that. It's always been biblical Christianity, uh, Judaism, as it developed, that have promoted promoted better rights for women. Now, in Solomon's era, that wasn't the case. But as they would develop, that would improve. But at this point, it's not. I mean, it, it is sad that you could have so many wives. I doubt that very few of them were really actual believers. So it's, but I do think that he probably had probably a wife that he would love really. I think that's always been the case. Even in harems, there's ones ones that's the favorite. And I do think that just shows we're better united as one man, one woman. But we cannot say that he had the ideal marriage. I would never say that. Furthermore, my wife would shoot me. I learned that one night. And I was only making a joke. I told her to take my class. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's scary, Ken. <laughs> I don't want her in your class. <laughs> but... But but she did know I was joking because, I mean, I wouldn't want to have another wife or anything like that. I'm content with my wife. Uh, she is the wife of my youth, and our marriage wasn't arranged. We were just still pretty young. So anyway, I'm trying to backtrack so nobody can hold that over me. <laughs> I know which side my bread's buttered on. Okay, let's look then at this wife of your youth. That's further described as your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Verse 14 indicates that marriage is a covenant relationship. 
further. Furthermore, the immediate context of 2.14 suggests that the marriage covenant is related to the Mosaic covenant mentioned in 2.10. In 2.14, the covenant is related to the marriage as the wife of your covenant indicates. Eugenberger defines covenant as an elected as opposed to natural relationship. By the way, natural would be like cousins uh, or a sibling. It's an elected chosen relationship of obligation established under divine sanction. Eugenberger's written the definitive book on marriage's covenant. That's why in the NIV, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they translate Malachi 2.16, something to the effect, the man who hates and divorces his wife. I should say the NIV 2011. Because the research he did is irrefutable. So he's had a tremendous impact on Bible translations. So many of the modern ones are going along with that. So I quote him, I've gone through him, and it's, it is a definitive book. Now notice in the Old Testament, marriage is explicitly referred to as a covenant on two occasions. Our immediate context in Proverbs 2, verse 17. According to this understanding, now this is my last three lines, note this. According to this understanding, there are four essential elements or ingredients to an Old Testament marriage covenant. Number one, it's a relationship. Number two, it's with a non-relative. Number three, which involves an obligation. And four, is established through an oath. Now, Eugenberger just stated that a few lines above. But I wanted to itemize it here. So it's a relationship. It's with a non-relative. It involves obligation and established through, through an oath. It is best to understand that the mar- marriage covenant is used in Israel is what we would call a sub-covenant. See, the Mosaic covenant is the major covenant. This is a part of it. That's why I refer to it as a sub-covenant. Many sub-covenants with the Mosaic covenant. Marriage being one. Um, as such, a marriage covenant between two people of the opposite sex living under the Mosaic covenant is a mutually binding agreement with the Lord. The Lord of the covenant who serves as the enforcer of the marriage covenant. I prefer to use here enforcer rather than witness so nobody's confused. God is the enforcer. In short, marriage involves a covenant relationship that is divinely sanctioned. In this verse, being unfaithful, or I'll often put it as breaking faith, with your partner refers to being unfaithful to one's marriage covenant. That's the point. Um, you know, I've, I mean, this is my relationship with God is my most important relationship 
in this life and the hereafter. The one that's under it is my marriage. Um, my wife and I, we had real good friends when I taught in the South. And uh, their house burnt down and they stayed with us and, you know, they've come up to visit us and we visited them. And Well, lo and behold, we moved north and I started to teach up here. And all about five years after we moved up here, our friend, the spouse in the marriage, called us and said how uh, her husband uh, and her were getting a divorce. Now, she was the one that was filing for divorce. Now, he might as well have because he was already shacking up with another woman. But her friend... She says, it just, we just grew apart. We had nothing in common. We didn't want to be married. And I remember saying to her, her name was Nancy. Nancy, I'm afraid with that type of attitude, you may end up in hell. Boy, she got irate. Well, when I read the New Testament... Jesus has some pretty strong statements. Now, I'm not saying everybody gets a divorce is going to end up in hell. There are people who should rightly file for divorce, not because of a no-fault thing, but they have conditions. Somebody's been unfaithful. Uh, I think that's a primary thing. Or they beat somebody up. I, with my views on marriage and divorce, I think marital abuse, physical marital abuse, are grounds for divorce. Uh, that to me is different than just saying, you know, we just learned we didn't like each other. And that was her grounds. That's why I told her that. I said, you claim to be a Christian. Now, I was trying to shock her into reality and hopefully move her to repentance. But the truth is, there is a chance somebody could run that case. Um, And it's scary. Because if we harden our heart on our spouse, we will harden it towards God. That's, That's the problem. So it will affect our spiritual relationship. Now, years later, somebody may repent. So I can't say, They're going to hell. I said to her, with that type of attitude, I think I said, you could go to hell. I didn't say she was. But what I wanted to do was challenge her attitudes. But her husband, he ended up, he wanted to be married to this other woman. And so it was hopeless. What's sad? They taught at the Christian college I taught at. One of my colleagues. We started seminary in 1971 together. Knew him real well. So it was a shock. But people, Christian people, they change over time. And that's what we got to guard ourselves. Or we could change too. So, but I don't know, that was a real sobering thing. 
I mean, I knew this, we knew this husband and wife really well. And it's tough when you see your friends go through it. Especially when they're children's. They've reaped the whirlwind. That's, to me, one of the bigger problems. But, anyway, she was not interested in what I had to say. So we just moved on and uh, resolved we got to do what we think is biblically right. And uh, that's all we can do. No, 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 no. He had lost his job, which is good. I mean, at a Christian college, he should. (laughs) So, uh, uh, and by the way, I'm not saying that all divorces are unbiblical. I cannot say that. But I would say no-fault divorces, and that's really what she was talking about. She wished she could, was living in Michigan at the time because they just could have got a divorce, but they were living in Tennessee. And so you know, they had to go through a more detailed process. Here, it would have been just simple. So that's, that's really what I was concerned about. So there are biblical grounds, but before we get to that point, we really need to bolster our marriages. Well, let's look at point D. Well, Malachi's marriage covenant is a sub-covenant of the Mosaic covenant. Notice it is grounded in the creation ordinance for marriage. That's in Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Initially here, we'll look at the creation ordinance followed by its relationship to the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, let's turn back to Genesis 2, 18 to 25. The Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, and he brings them before Adam, and he's going to name them. Look at verse, the last part of verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, by the way, God already knew that was the occasion. God wanted Adam to see he didn't have anyone who corresponded to him. So God's convincing Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into this deep sleep. I uh, refer to the Lord here as the first anesthesiologist, as well as the first surgeon. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. There's the surgery. And then closed it up, closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. By the way, in Hebrew, this reflects his, his, his wonderment, his surprise, his happiness. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, when two of our three children got married, I used this as the text for my sermon. Because 
It is part of the creation ordinance, marriages. And notice here, they had excitement. At least Adam did. We don't know about Eve's feelings. She was going along for the ride, you might say. (laughs) But she didn't know any better, so she had to be excited. (laughs) Uh, But it is an appropriate text. Well, notice what I'm saying here. This sub-covenant in the Mosaic Covenant about marriage is grounded in this passage in Genesis 2. And notice I point out here, there's four parts of this passage. There was a relationship. It was with a non-relative, which involves mutual obligation, and it was established with an oath, a warba solemnia. It is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, a solemn word. So here, that's the same four ingredients we saw on the previous page about the ingredients for the marriage covenant. It was true in Genesis chapter 2. Yes, sir. Well, that, that's a little bit different. Okay. I mean, he had to get things started. Yeah. And, and by the way, who did, uh, who did it, Cain marry? Right. Had to be a sister. Right. So that changes over time, okay. especially once, once the fall occurs. There is contamination that runs in the genes and the bloodlines. And it has been demonstrated. Uh, the problems if you marry like a brother or sister. Uh, you know, the possibilities for Down syndrome, retardation, they increase greatly with it. So I think it's right to have a law that doesn't permit it. Now, Israel, with their system, they're also going to develop laws against that. But in the beginning, that was not so because there was a more greater purity in the gene pool. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't have been as much a concern. I think this is more just because of the health risk. Okay. okay. You'll notice my next paragraph. As a creation ordinance, this also just suggests that marriage is transdispensational. What this implies for the book of Malachi is that we should not be surprised to find elements of the marriage ordinance reflected in parts of the Mosaic Covenant. That comes after creation. As well as I could have thrown in there, as well as in our era. Marriage is presented as a uniquely chosen, divinely sanctioned relation of obligation between two non-related people of the opposite sex. In the Old Testament, parents generally arrange marriages. With marriages under the law, Families negotiated such arrangements. Drawing from the Old Testament and other ancient Near Eastern text documents, part of the negotiations involved the payment of a bride price to the woman's father. Uh, Usually that was considered a significant amount. So, you know, they're going to be giving something that might be equivalent to three to six months of our wages. May say, that's a pretty steep price. But I would say, my daughter was worth it. But we didn't go that route. I wish I would have known better. She could never have gotten married. <laughs> well, I definitely would have had a wife problem on that one. 
Also, the woman's father gave her a dowry. Now, notice the purpose for this stuff. The purpose of these payments, the bride price, the dowry, was to establish security for the married couple. In reference to the bride, the dowry gave her some security. The dowry continued to belong to the bride, so if her husband died or divorced her, she had the money to live on. She might also get a portion of the estate in addition to her dowry. The only exception to this was when the wife caused the divorce, and sometimes that did happen, but it was not the majority of the way. The dowry continued to belong to the bride's... I'm sorry. The only exception to this was when the wife divorced his wife. My next sentence. In some arrangements, the wife would get only half the dowry, in this case, if she was the divorcing partner, though usually she lost all rights to the dowry. Another significance of these payments was to ensure that the marriage was not taken lightly. By the way, I think if we were giving that much, I don't think we'd take it lightly. Uh, you know, I think our maybe our engagement rings should be the equivalent of three to six months' salary. That seems a bit steep to me. <laughs> and I think all the guys would agree with that. <laughs> That's right. We, my wife has a very small engagement ring. <laughs> but nevertheless, I understand their point in doing that under the law. It, it would take care of the wife if anything happened. Um, we have some examples of this in the Bible, Genesis 24, 29, Ruth 3 and 4. All this suggests that this was a formal agreement between families. In addition, the Mosaic Covenant had stipulations tied to marriage. For example, it was unlawful to marry a blood relative. The covenant also established that the marriage was between two people of the opposite sex, and it required marital faithfulness. Homosexuality and bestiality were prohibited in Leviticus 18. And I think the reason is obvious. Uh, with homosexual unions, you cannot procreate. And I even hate to mention bestiality. It's despicable. But, may I say, there's no children there either. You know, I remember when I went to college, I worked in a steel mill. And you had some farmers that worked there. And they'd talk about this stuff. I was shocked. As I think I was about 20, 21. I just did not believe men could be so low. But they're out there. So that still goes on in our country. Yep. I mean, judging by my experience at the steel mill, I'd like to think that there's, I mean, I don't like to think, I'd be dumb to think others don't try that, which is just hideous. But by the way, both homosexuality and this, they're abominations in God's sight. I can see why. In either case, I can't figure it out. It's the whole issue of homosexual unions. It's scary the effect this is going to have on the local church. 
and it will eventually affect us. Hopefully, God will somehow revive us. Hopefully, we vote in a different type of administration to slow it down. Because what I'm afraid for are my children and my grandchildren. That's what worries me more than anything. You know, my children are married, and we thank God for that. But now we have grandchildren. It scares me to think of the world they're being raised in. So we should pray for our elections. Now, you need to consider, too, we're always voting for the lesser two evils. Nobody's pure in this regard. The question is, who has the most morally pure platform? And I couch it that way because it's, it's not going to be completely pure. But which one lines up as close as possible to Scripture? That's who we should vote for. So it's not, to me, it's never been about the wallet. I've never made that much of the money to start with. It's always been about the moral agenda. And we need to pray that, and hopefully we can inculcate it in other believers to do the same thing. Because the next elections are important. The 2014 election is very important. Although I don't know that having the United Senate and House can override executive order. I don't think it can. So, I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it can't. So I think we're stuck with the executive orders. Uh, but we'll just have to live with it. He is our president. We need to respect the office. Uh, we don't have to agree with him. It is hard to respect the office, I have to admit. <laughs> but nevertheless, I have to fight to do it. So, yeah, we had a police officer preach in chapel today. He, uh, he's one of our seminary students, Dave Davis. He was a Philly cop, uh, downtown Philly. So my son Bob says, when you're downtown in big cities, that probably means he's bad of the bad. And he is. Uh, he's worked, I mean, he's been working at the school. He's going to graduate from seminary. But uh, a couple high school kids snuck up on him. And his reaction, I mean, they came up from behind. He decked both of them. Just quick reactions. Fortunately, he didn't pull out that knife that he says, it's not a switchblade, but this opens real quickly and I can slit a throat very easily. <laughs> so, anyway, he, he spoke on Romans 13. And he, did remind, and he did remind us. And he is not an Obama supporter. He's, he's opposed to his agendas. But he did say because of that passage, some others, we do have to respect the leader. And he'd say even if he's in North Korea, he would have to there too. Because it was written during the Roman Empire. And the Caesars were merciless. They were wicked. So, in any event, I do have to admit it's tough. But hopefully we can curtail some of the things we see unfolding here. Um, the extensive laws in Leviticus 18 about extensive interpersonal relationships and moral standards reflecting Yahweh's holiness indicates, indicate that marriage was between two non-relatives of the opposite sex. Furthermore, each partner involved 
in a marital contract had obligations to fulfill. Now notice, the stuff we're covering here, I would say this is what constitutes the marriage covenant. Each partner involved in a marital covenant had other obligations to fulfill. This included sexual faithfulness for both parties. The husband had certain obligations to satisfy the basic needs of his wife. For example, in Exodus 21, 10 to 11, it establishes that a husband was obligated to provide for a slave wife certain basics of life, food, clothing, and marital rights. If these were denied, the slave wife was free to leave without any payment of money. I mean, a slave wife didn't. She didn't have a dowry or you know, bride price. So she just was set loose. She was free to remarry. But if she didn't, you know, it would be a hard life for her. Um, if a slave wife had this type of freedom for divorce, it's safe to assume that a free woman would also have these same rights. So, Usually when we're talking about the New Testament, when somebody says there is a biblical divorce, they're usually talking about adultery or desertion by the unbelieving partner. Because of my views on the marriage covenant, I prefer to say a divorce will be biblical if it violates any of the terms of the marriage covenant. Uh, not not looking cross-eyed or anything like that. But, you know, denying a wife, food, clothing, marital rights, that's pretty serious. Well, that's constituted a divorce. So I would say, to me, the marriage covenant can be broken if somebody breaks the marriage contract. And it would have to be the serious things. So, but we can see what is involved in marriage. We got two people of the op- opposite sex. Uh, they marry. There's an oath. They have a vow they've taken before God. That constitutes the marriage covenant. Here we're filling in some details, um, and those details include that the husband was supposed to provide for food, shelter, and marital rights. If those were deprived, the woman was free to go. And what that means is she could get a divorce. Now, as a pastor, well, I had a policy. Now, I was a pastor between 25 and 27, and I was really pretty dumb in many ways. I did do some things right. Before the church called me, the issue about marriage came up and divorce. In those days, I, I, I was opposed to divorce. But I said, if Scripture persuades me otherwise, my mind can be changed. But I did have a caution. I said, I will not marry anybody 
who's not a member of our church or somebody I know real well and that they have hope for Christian marriage. I can't tell you the three years I was there, the number of people who wanted to get married who were not part of our church, uh, the numbers of people even back then who were already having relationships. Well, I guarded myself. Now, I was young and naive, so it was by accident. <laughs> what church would ever call a pastor who's 25 years of, of age? Well, they were crazy enough to call, and I was crazy enough to accept. <laughs> but I learned a lot. But nevertheless, that was important. Well, we'll stop here. I guess in two weeks we'll pick this up. We'll finish it off probably in the first half hour. And then we'll move on to other portions.